Hello and welcome to JPlay, the Playism podcast, the official podcast of the indie-focused Japanese publisher, Playism. I'm your host, Nine Ramachandra, Senior Marketing Manager for Playism. And all the way in Nagano, we've got... Dan Stern, the Senior Content Manager for Playism. Who is uh, our regular second chair, but is currently visiting his family, so he's not in Osaka right now. And our third is... This is Plays and Brian. For those of you who are following our blog and our Twitter account, I'm the one who's constantly updating us on all social aspects and media that comes from our website. My position within the company is I'm basically Nyan's goon. Yeah, yeah, right. So I would like the term henchman better. Yeah, henchman and goon, I think they both work. There's um, a little bit of dissent between your uh, two henchmen as to which terminology best fits it, but I enjoy goon. It really kind of elevates me into less of a muscular physical persona and more just a carry out this task for me if you feel you're not muscular enough you should read the goon it's a fantastic comic about a dude who is incredibly muscular <laughs> i was actually thinking like inquisitional henchman from oh, 40k yeah. oh, okay. but i mean plays and brian isn't cybernetic enough for that one either that's true wait for my upgrades yes <laughs> actually when i was saying goon before i was thinking more of like supervillain goons the guys who are dressed kind of like the main supervillain uh, but kind of just carry around machine guns instead of having special powers. So like I'd wear vague accents of your wardrobe, but mostly just make sure that I showcase my weapon. Right, exactly. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm on board completely. Yeah, I'm down down. <laughs> so we're actually doing a special episode. It's going to be a little shorter than usual, but it's also going to be focused on what we just came back from, Tokyo Game Show. Tokyo Game Show. We all had kind of different experiences with Tokyo Game Show. Tokyo Game Show is kind of a little different from what we usually do at events. PAX Prime, like we talked about last time, uh, usually we have a booth, and I'm usually stuck at it, and Dan gets to go around and talk to developers. Uh, but it's kind of a little different than what we usually do when we go to TGS. We usually don't have a booth, but TGS does have a indie game corner where a bunch of indie developers are able to apply to have their games available to show. And what we do is instead of having a booth, we go there, you know, we make appointments with media, we take media around to check out different games, make sure that we can help the developers if they need help with interpretation or translation for something. We help them prepare their booth if they need something written in English or in Japanese. Uh, in general, you know, we just kind of make sure that they're good to go. Dan, you tend to talk to a lot of more developers though, right? Yeah, that's pretty much all I really did. I didn't make my way over to the main building for any reason other than to just enter the Indies area on the general day. Even as much as I was dying to play the old Hunters, I didn't get around over there. Yeah, I wanted to actually go over there to... Well, I got to play Metal Gear Online on the business days. This is one thing also, is that TGS is four days long. And so it's two business days where it's just media, developers, and associated business people who go there kind of like to connect with other people. It's a good event to connect with. And then there's the public days, which are hell. Basically, anybody with 10 bucks can get in. I have no problem with people wanting to get into TGS. I think it's awesome that people are so excited about it. But the problem is that Nikkei, the guys who run the event, they don't cap tickets. So when you get your tickets to TGS, you basically are standing in a sea of people. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And there's only more people and more people. And every restaurant is packed. And it's like a two-hour line to get a cheeseburger at Burger King. It's just a nightmare, and I don't like the public days at all. But the business days were really fun. Did you get to try anything out, Dan, while you were there? Yeah, I actually got to play a number of cool games. One that really stood out for me was Mushroom 11. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. I mean, it's basically a puzzle platformer, but you're not really platforming so much as, like, pushing your way through the level. You're kind of growing into stuff. Well, you've got a blob of fungus, like some kind of weird post-apocalyptic fungus. You use your cursor to erase parts of yourself, and then if you're touching the ground, then you can regrow. The whole game is you trying to make your way through the level, but, you know, the, the shape of the terrain makes for all these, like, funky puzzles that you have to solve on, like, 
how do you erase yourself in what order like from what directions do you need to split into two parts in order to do this and really like after you for example get through a gap and into a crevice you really only need like one cell everything's split up into these little tiny boxes and each one's a cell and you only need one cell over there for you to be able to grow in the direction that you need to interesting but if your entire body falls into lava for example and you burn up then it's game over so you've got to preserve at least one cell in the direction that you're trying to go. You still actually just restart immediately, right? When you get game over? I uh, don't know. I didn't. I managed to get through it without getting game over. Okay, I think it's actually pretty forgiving. Like it doesn't like restart you at the end of the level. You actually just go back to the last checkpoint, which I'm sure there are quite a few of. But when I saw it, it seemed like it restarts pretty quickly. So it's not. It's like Super Meat Boy quick. Like it's not. It's not frustrating. From what I see. Right. Actually, speaking of Super Meat Boy, I also played the newest iteration of Super Root Bear Resurrection. Yes. Now that is a game that is not forgiving. It does get easier the more you die. It's a very spike-heavy game. And when your teddy bear character dies on spikes, then you can stand where his dead corpse is. So, you know, the more you die, the easier it is if you keep going. If you're anything like me, then you get really, like, sort of stubborn with it. You want to do it perfectly, basically? Yeah, like, you can click the right stick to erase all your bodies so that you can, you know, keep trying while everything's dangerous. And, man, the levels are really brutal. He basically covers every surface except for, like, little tiny platforms with spikes. It's amazing. Yeah, I remember seeing the game and being like, wow, that looks incredibly awesome. And people are really digging it. Really, really digging it. I'm not, like, a Super Meat Boy-style player. Like, that's not the kind of stuff that I'm into. But I can totally see that being, like, a really, really awesome, like, platformer for people who want something that's, like, not just really, really hard, but also something that people can kind of, like, keep going back to and trying and trying and trying without being like, oh, God, not another loading screen. Yeah, actually, that's good. Not another loading screen is a good point, because those can get so frustrating. I'm playing Bastion right now, and there are quite a few loading screens. At least in at least in the case of Bastion, I don't think they're that bad. I think a lot of like AAA games, it's the worst, where you, you, know, you die in a level, and it's like a boss, but then you go back to the beginning of the level, and it still has to pay, play that whole cinematic intro that introduces the boss, and you can't skip it. Yeah. And you're like, I just, I know what's happening. I just need to go back to where I was so I can try this again. You know, that that part is more infuriating sometimes than the actual fight. Yeah, I've never felt such a long 15 seconds in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only it was only 15 seconds all the time. Sometimes it's way more than that. Yeah, that's true. How about you? Did you play something that really caught your attention? Uh, Plays on Brian, man. You haven't said anything yet. Yeah, yeah. Actually, just a couple of quick points. I wanted to talk a little bit about Super Root Bear Resurrection because I did get a chance to see that game in its development stage last year at Tokyo Game Show. I was fortunate enough to run into developer Alex Rose, uh, who was showcasing it by his lonesome. He had flown out to Japan for the first time from merry old England to show off his game. And I gotta say, like, the game was incredible and looked and functioned so well even a year ago. And that's, like, he's come leaps and bounds since then just in presentation. He's built all these new levels. The graphics have become really polished. And it's really, I believe a lot of the development from it came after an infusion from the British government who are doing their best to help support developers, especially indie devs in that part of the world and as a result his game is just seeing exponential growth and it's i think it's going to do huge when it finally launches yeah i was amazed to see what it looked like after he hired artists yeah yeah definitely but another game that i saw that i was really intrigued by was also in the indie area it's called lost in harmony and it was it's a mobile game and it kind of combines from the demo that i saw it's a combination of kind of an endless skateboard runner but it's not endless it's episodic 
But in between navigating through things on your skateboard, there's also a rhythm section that crops up where you then also have to match notes as they appear on the screen. And the whole, like, it's very strange because it feels like two completely separate genres, but they intermingle really well with each other as you just kind of adjust your play style as the two occur. And one thing that I learned afterwards is that the developer for it is the same one who's also done Valiant Hearts, which is the World War One, one yeah. uh, storyline game that's been absolutely amazing. I've I've played that on my phone. I've played it up on Fire TV now. It's certainly a departure from the two, uh, from the original game, but it's got just that same level of heart to it and that same kind of deep interest that I'm developing from characters that I know almost nothing about. So I was really very pleasantly surprised by that game. I feel like you're missing like the most important part in your whole description of Lost in Harmony, which makes it a game that I want to check out, that it is basically 90s anime. The whole art style is like 90s anime. Like it's a 90s anime love story. Like it's really, really cool in the it way really that like is. I, I really found like 90s anime romance stories to be like heartfelt and interesting. And two characters are kind of like, you know, lost in the shuffle of all the crap that's going on around them. And mm-hmm. then them kind of just stay, stay together. Like it reminded me a little, even though there are no robots in it, as far as I know, it reminds me a lot, at least aesthetically and feeling, it reminds me a lot of Macross. There's a bit to say, like, for example, it's like Macross sounds sounds accurate to what you're describing, or maybe yeah. uh, Ranma 1 half. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely more Macross than it is Ranma 1 half. It's kind of, at least from what I saw, it's got it's got some adventure to it, but it's got, like, a lot of heart to it. Honestly, like, I think, you know, there have been so many times when a developer tries to do, like, an anime style, and it's so obvious when you see it, you're like, okay, this is obviously done by somebody who's not Japanese because there's a certain like element of, of anime that you can never really copy unless you've sort of spent some time in Japan, spent time with, with Japanese people and the culture and so on. But there's something about this game that at first I actually was like blown away by how true to 90s anime it is aesthetically. Can I actually, on that same vein, can I bring up another game that, that's really standing out to me? Absolutely not, no. <laughs> oh, oh well in that case uh feel free to continue on some other topic <laughs> and dan just wanders off sadly <laughs> but you guys wouldn't know because i'm not there yeah exactly really i just went to the fridge <laughs> <laughs> so no what, what is the this game it was valhalla oh yeah oh, yeah, 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 yeah valhalla's fantastic it, it blows me away that like two guys from venezuela I'm, I'm pretty sure they've never been to japan either they can nail the art style they can nail the humor they get like the feel of like late eighties, early nineties anime perfect. At the same time, you know, they just they're such excellent writers and they've managed to like put a, a new spin on like how you make your way through a, a visual novel. You know, most visual novels you choose text, like you choose replies to for the conversations so, and that's how you kind of find out what uh, what branch of the path that you're going to be going through. Actually and, it's funny, um I I haven't talked to Chris or Fernando about this, the two guys working on Valhalla, but uh-huh. I have a feeling that if I were to ask them, they would say yes, which is, I, I would love to ask them if they're actually more influenced by by stuff like Snatcher, like older Japanese adventure games like Snatcher or Famicom Detective Club than they are by actually like new visual novels. Because new visual novels are actually very, very different than Valhalla, both in aesthetic and as well as like the UI I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's a bartending game, so you're making a lot of drinks and stuff. So that's that's totally different from all those games. But right, the, the, how you make the drinks or what you make uh, determines how the story progresses for each of the different patrons that come to the bar. Right, but the aesthetics of it and like how it presents itself is so snatcher, like it's so like MSX era 
Japanese adventure game that it makes me wonder if these guys are actually more influenced by that than they are by modern visual novels. I don't, yeah, I never got the feeling that they're so explicitly into adventure novels. I definitely feel a lot more influence from like, yeah, older MSX or maybe, maybe essentially like anime and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah, though the game is fantastic, and I'm I'm really glad. I don't know if you saw, but uh, quite a few publications actually picked it up for their TGS picks. A lot of people really liked it. The uh, I would, I did the interpretation for one of the interviews actually. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw I saw the GameSpark actually posted an article about it, and they seemed very positive. So that was really oh, cool nice, to see. Nice. It was really cool. Like that was, I actually ended up learning some things that I hadn't known because the interview was with Brian Craig, the publisher at Isbrid. And yeah, he said some interesting things that I hadn't heard about, sort of like about the game's dystopian setting being influenced by the creator's experiences in Venezuela. I mean, it's kind of like an obvious point, I guess, once you think about it. But, you know, being so far from a a situation like that, it's easy to forget that some people need to write about these things to express, you know, how they feel and their experiences and whatnot. They neatly tuck those experiences into a setting where you wouldn't even have to think that it's from their experiences. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's put into the cyberpunk atmosphere where like if you're writing cyberpunk, you're writing dystopia. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's going to be a similar-ish story whether you're writing from Japan or from, uh, from America or what. Like look at the difference between Blade Runner, Ghost in the Shell, and Valhalla. All right. different places, but they're not insanely different. Right. Yeah. They're all kind of telling the same story in, in different ways. Yeah. Very, very personal stories within these heavily industrialized, hyper-technological settings. You've played more of the demo than I have, and I don't want to speak too much about the story of Valhalla without actually playing it myself. Hopefully I have some time to do so. But at least in the case of Blade Runner and Ghost in the Shell, you're kind of dealing with characters that want to be good people, trying to be morally good within a morally gray world, Mm. right? Like a world that's born from how morally gray it's become. And in the case of Blade Runners, you know, whether or not it's a good idea to kill replicants, who is what is a replicant really, versus, you know... The case of Ghost in the Shell, where you've got essentially like a Japanese fascist state, and these people are doing their mission, what they think is the right thing to do, but yeah. they're they're essentially answering to a fascist state. That's it. That's that's all. That's it. No, that I, was I, really I heavy. This. We're just kind of no, yeah, I, again, like oh my god, there was silence. Yeah, there was real silence there, and I was like, oh well, you know, <laughs> you know, I have to like give like a moment of silence for my fantastic speech about cyberpunk dystopia, but <laughs> okie dokie. So I actually went over to the main hall just a little bit. I made the choice, I think smartly, now that I think back about it, of going only on the business day, except for that one day on the last day where we had to go through the business, uh, the, <laughs> the main hall. Yeah, I tried to avoid the main hall for the most part because it during the public days, it's impossible to get in anything. Lines are like three, four hours long or closed. As I've said before, I'm not the kind of person that I don't like to play games at events. Like I'm, I'm weird like that. Like I like to like... Go up to the booth, see what the booth looks like, see the game on videos and see other people play it and say like, okay, that looks really cool. I'll probably buy that. So there's there's very few times where I'm like, oh, I got to play this. And it's usually not, it's not like, oh man, I can't wait for it to come out. So I'm going to play it now. It's more, I'm so intensely curious to see how they pulled this off. I really have to try it. And and for me, even then, it has to also be a short line. Like it can't be like a 30 minute line. I'm not going to stay 30 minutes, especially because... I had a bunch of media appointments and stuff that I had to get to and right. some meetings outside of Tokyo Game Show that I had to go to. So I didn't really have a ton of time, but I managed to check out Metal Gear Online, which comes out on October 6th. And I realized, I realized last episode I talked about Metal Gear Solid 5 and I was kind of eh about it. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm nearing the end of the game now and I'm still kind of eh about it. Uh, I still think it's a good game, but it's not, it's not what I wanted. But Metal Gear Online was kind of something that I wanted to try out because I really enjoyed Metal Gear Solid Online when it came out for MGS4. 
So I tried it again uh, this time. It was a 15-minute line, really, really short. Sat down, played best of three match. And it was really, really fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I think the real shame of it is that, you know, all of us know it's not going to get supported at all post-release. Like, they've already announced it. Konami's already announced that they've ceased all uh, development of all titles that aren't Pro Evolution Soccer. So going forward, not, we're not going to get any more. We're probably not going to get any DLC packs. We're probably not going to get any patches, no bug fixes. If anything is a glaring flaw in the game, it'll be a glaring flaw forever. So I, as much as I'm really excited to play it, the sad thing is I don't think it's going to get the support it deserves. On the plus side, uh, we've got silenced rocket launchers forever. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, that does mean that you got Game of the Year edition on day one. So, I mean. Yeah, it's the best it's going to get. Absolutely, right there. Uh, Dan, did you get a chance to make it out to the main halls at all, besides the uh, brief period of time where we tried to cut through there on Sunday? I wouldn't call that brief because it takes so long to get through anywhere in, at TGS, but uh, not honestly, not really. The The strongest memory I have from the main halls is coming in on the on the first public day and there was some kind of like AKB event going on on this partition and the doors are closed to the partition. So there are all these people gathered around outside of the walls with like glow sticks and flashing shit in their hands. And they're all like, they're all dancing and they're all really excited about looking at this white like partition wall. Yeah. It looked like they were like crowding around a cube, just dancing with the music spewing out of the cube. Like they had no idea what was inside of it. Man, were they into it. The the bass was so loud. It was it was ridiculous. It was like, you know, old glory to the cube. Like it was it was weird because they couldn't see anything. It's like it did totally look like a some kind of bizarre like cult ritual. It kind of did. If it seemed really weird, and it was almost like it reminds me of like people who you know back in the day who used to like if they lived in a certain part of New York, they would like be able to like hear Mets games. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They'd be like in the field over, like hearing the Mets games, and they're like, "This is just as good as watching it." It's like, no, it's not, dude. <laughs> just go watch the Mets game. Come on. No, so, I mean, if, if I had been in their position, I'd, if I liked this music, I would probably just listen to the CD. You can't see the stage. What's the point? Yeah, and it's—I mean—it's—it's it's echoing in this like huge chamber, and it's like the sound quality is not going to be as good as just going home and listening to it with headphones. Yeah, yeah, and this isn't like the same as uh, being like the, in the nosebleeds or anything. Like, there's literally a wall between them and the things they w- want to see. So without X-ray vision, they can't do it. Well, their eyes were closed, anyways. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, what was that about? I don't know. Despite the fact that we're all part of like the video game industry and we're we're part of like gaming in Japan, I continue to find otaku culture, as it calls itself, like really deep otaku culture to be kind of confusing and mysterious. Because there's so many things that like there's so you know, there's some portions of it that I totally get. Like, you know, video games totally get, manga totally get, some anime totally get. Uh but you know, the things that I don't get Idols don't get idols at all, and it's become such a huge part of otaku culture, and I really just don't understand it for two reasons. One, it's just a person singing music, but they treat them like gods. Like right, they're just right. they're just a person singing music. I've seen concerts many times with people who are way more famous, way more talented. Who I'm just like, holy crap, this guy's amazing. This girl's amazing. They're so amazing on stage, but I'm not like falling to pieces when I see them on stage. I'm like, I'm just happy that I'm there. And plus, here's the other thing that I find so confusing, and I'm sure someone's going to get so angry at me for this, so I apologize in advance, but the music is awful. <laughs> it is. It really is. It is awful. Now, it could be, and I, and I, I will totally say it's possible that it's just a difference in 
in the genre of music, but there's plenty of like like J-pop that I actually do like. So I, I'm not against J-pop, but the majority of J-pop that's like idol music is goddamn awful. It is terrible. I think this if this was live radio, we could actually just watch the numbers dropping. People just turned us off, like never buying that again. <laughs> and this is again, this is, doesn't reflect the views of playism as a whole. This is just me saying I don't understand idol music. I don't get it. I mean, again, this is not also me not saying like if you like idol music, you're a terrible person. No, like what you like. Be be confident in what you like. If you like something, like it for real. You know, if you if you're really into idol music, don't hide it. Don't like pretend that like, oh, well, Nine said he doesn't like it, so I don't like it anymore. Like, dude, if you like it, love it. That's cool. I love all kinds of weird stuff. I like figure skating for crying out loud. So I have nothing to hide. I remember back in the days where I, where I didn't really talk about video games and I didn't really talk about comics at school because that kind of stuff, you know, messed with your reputation. You wouldn't be right. cool anymore. Exactly. Yeah. I, so and I, that's kind of how I got through school, like being being a nerd who knew when to be a nerd and when not to be. Right. We don't have to do that anymore, though. No, we don't have to. And if you like what you like and, you know, you're worried that your friends like something different, it doesn't matter. I also have the power to think that idle music is awful. Right. <laughs> you got the power, man. I've got the power. I've got the touch. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I know a lot of guys who are like really, really good guys, like talented, smart, professional guys who are like huge into like Idol Master and Love Live. And I don't get it. I do not get it one bit. And I've I've always wanted to, and I've you know now that Netflix is out in Japan, I've been wanting to like flip over to one of them and just watch it for five minutes and see what happens. But I'm pretty sure I would like every time I've like wanted, I've thought about it, I've I've wimped out right when it's ninety nine percent loading, like before it even starts. I'm like I can't do it. I, I, I just can't. Like one day you're just gonna come into the office in a bright pink fitted t shirt. Uh, you're gonna have three or four dolls just under each arm, and we're gonna know. We're yeah. gonna know you finally loaded the first episode, and that's all we need. I totally feel that you can do these things like and do them very well, because that's Macross Plus, is it not? And I love Sharon Apple. Sharon Apple is awesome. I mean, like if you think of Sharon Apple from Macross Plus as like the be all end all of idle music which is manufactured sound computer creation like Hatsune Miku is basically Sharon Apple except Hatsune she Miku is, hasn't gone insane and killed anybody well yeah but the music's not good enough yet either I agree there too and that's the thing Sharon Apple's music is fantastic I hate to cut it short sorry Brian I didn't get to see a whole lot but yeah, we are kind of right. running out of time for today's show any parting words before we get out of here She's just kind of uh, reflecting again on the public days versus business days. It's something that is so phenomenal seeing the separation of the night and day of going there when it's primarily for for businesses, for other developers, for designers, for people who are kind of looking at what's coming. And then for the public, for just because there's no cap on the entrance and there's also a very, very minimal fee in order to get in there. You not only have the faithful and the people who are fully invested in the game, but you have people who basically had a free weekend and are like, what's all the hype about? And it, it does get, I imagine it gets disappointing for some people because when you get in there, a lot of the larger booths do go ahead and just set a cap early on in the day. They're like, okay, we're only going to be able to have this many people at this time. We're going to do this. We're going to hand out tickets as soon as they start coming in. And it can be like, Doors open at 10 o'clock. You get in there at 10.15. If you're lucky, you can get a ticket for the 4 o'clock play of this game. And if you get there two minutes later, you're not going to see it that day. 
Yes, it's set up all day. Yes, you've just spent hours waiting in line, but that's the end of it. But yeah, I don't know if I'm stepping out of bounds and saying this, but I, I feel like letting everyone in creates a worse experience for everybody involved. Whereas if they were to, for example, I believe they had like 200-ish thousand people there. Um, yeah. I believe if they were to cap it, for example, at at 150 or even maybe even less, maybe 120 thousand, then you would everybody there would have a much better experience. And for that, people would be talking about it more on the internet. And it would end up being better publicity for everyone. Now, this is the part where I might be stepping out of bounds, but I feel like the reason that it is not like that is because it doesn't matter how much publicity it gets uh, from Nikkei's point of view. I, I think that's essentially true. I mean, and I definitely agree that people would be able to experience it in a much more, I guess, full encompassing point of view if there was a much lower population set within the Tokyo Game Show for that weekend. But I think from the eyes of Nikkei and from the eyes of a lot of people who present at Tokyo Game Show, it's not actually about having people be able to engage in their games. And that's why the booths, that's why the arenas are so huge and just overpowering when you get into that main hall. Like, I firmly believe that if Bandai Namco was intending for people to get the most out of their products by having people experience the game they wouldn't have reserved an area that's roughly the size of a city block but instead they wanted to make sure that even if you couldn't get anywhere near those games and play them yourself you knew about them they were blaring music they had giant signs they had screens that were basically projecting what you could not see with your human eyes because you couldn't get anywhere close to that and even though that is a worse experience from the perspective of somebody who wants to play the game, it's definitely a unique experience from the perspective of somebody who otherwise may not have attended these events at all. Like when we talk about the West and some of the expositions that they have there, like the tickets, for example, for PAX East, South, Prime, they tend to be four to five to six times as expensive as what it would be to get into the Tokyo Game Show. And it's certainly nowhere near the same level of intimacy or even the same level of being able to engage with the games but it's definitely an experience and i think nikkei is happy and content just basically pulling in those raw numbers every year even if the turnover rate is absolutely atrocious yeah well fair enough i mean i don't know i still think pax is a better event uh, and i think in general for both people exhibiting as well as the people checking it out and playing the games all right, so as we wrap up, Dan, where can they find you? What do you mean, where can you find me? What do you mean? Oh, on the internet. Jesus Christ. No, dude. no, no. You Give me GPS coordinates, man. We're going hunting. <laughs> I'm inclined to uh, to continue hiding. <laughs> I'm on the internet. DNA Noodle on Twitter. Go ahead and look me up. Follow if you want. All right. And uh, Brian? And if you want to keep up with everything that Playism has to say and me by proxy, we're, of course, on the Twitter as Playism E-N or Playismen, depending on how you read it. <laughs> and, of course, at the website, Playism-Games.com, we go ahead and we try to put out a blog post every day concerning things that are going on with us, with our releases, or generally what's going on in the world as far as gaming goes. Nine. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. That was a really good promo. I didn't have to do it myself. That's awesome. Uh, and of course, you can find me, Nine Ram and Chandran, at the Trin, T H E T R I N, on Twitter. And of course, you can also follow Playism on Facebook at facebook.com slash playism. We will catch you next time with a regularly scheduled and regularly length show. This has been 
Jplay, the Plays and Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Bye now. Bye.